So we are on chapter 24 of the story. It's centered on what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God and how people responded to that message. This theme of God's kingdom, it pops up um, throughout his teaching and his ministry, and it is so tightly interwoven with everything that happens that if you want to have any chance of understanding the gospel, the good news of the gospel, then understanding the kingdom of God is a requirement. It's a prerequisite. You have to understand the kingdom of God if you're going to understand the gospel. It, is, it, it goes together. Okay? It's that important. So we're going to start by putting ourselves in the mindset of those who heard Jesus speak. The, the disciples and women who walked with him, the crowds who swarmed him, the religious leaders who despised him, they all had a unique view of the world because they understood what a kingdom looked like. Now, unlike them, living under a king is not part of our world, okay? We live in a democracy where we have a voice. And any other form of government sounds medieval and ancient and old-fashioned. And, and any other thing is suggested, and we're like, oh, like, not have a say? That, that doesn't seem fair. No, 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 I, I don't want that. I, I didn't vote for that. I demand a recount. Hashtag not my king. And we get all like, about it. Now I looked it up because I'm curious. Did you know that the only absolute monarchies nowadays, like where a single ruler has all the power, you have the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is like the actual official name, like the kingdom is in it, okay? Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and a few other smaller nations and emirates, mostly in the Middle East, some in Southeast Asia. Every other earthly government has moved to some form of constitutional or democratic rule. Now you could say, ah, well, what about England? I hear about those guys all the time. No. Um, England, in Commonwealth realms, um, they have King Charles III, but his authority is limited, and, and the role of that monarchy is mostly ceremonial. It, it just, it's not the same thing. Now this is not meant to say that America is doing it wrong. Please just relax the shoulders. I'm not saying that, okay? I want you to understand just how backwards of an idea a kingdom is to you and me. It doesn't make sense. It is not part of our vocabulary. It's not part of our world. Okay? We have so little understanding that at first brush, the idea of any sort of king, any sort of kingdom feels wrong. For us, any authority can be challenged. If you don't like the people in charge or the policies that they implement, it's no big deal because you could vote them out the next time around. The mindset that we have is a bias against any sort of kingdom. I don't care how strongly you feel about modern-day political parties. It's not the same as what the original audience felt towards the Empire of Rome. Their life was different from yours and mine. So having that context is important. That original audience that heard Jesus speak, they understood what a king with absolute authority was. 
and they lived with a corrupt earthly kingdom every single day. And they craved, they craved justice, and they yearned for the promises that the prophets and the poets talked about in the Old Testament. Because they had firsthand experience with Rome, they knew what to expect the kingdom of God to look like. Or at least they thought they did. Like, this is what an earthly kingdom looks like, so the kingdom of God has to be that, only bigger. Now, before we go any further, I need to give a disclaimer. That's how you know it's good. When there's a disclaimer at church. The kingdom of God is a big topic. Like, big books have been written about it. Like, I went through my, my manuscript, my notes for today, with a machete. I chopped out bunches of stuff. There is so much that can be said. And I'm still going to go long, I think. Okay? This topic is huge. So there's no chance that we're going to tackle every single aspect of it this morning. Um, also, this topic straight up triggered people in Jesus' day, and it can have the same effect on us. My goal is not to trigger you. My goal is to exhort the saints to urge you towards righteousness, not to tick you off. That's not why I'm here, okay? But at the end of our time together, if you're feeling a little prickly, I encourage you to pray, to ask our Lord for understanding. And you can do that here. Uh, we even have a private space set aside for prayer. It's the first door on the left as you exit the gym. Jared Eikhoff will be back there. I know that he would be happy to pray with you. So yeah, don't just like get all prickly and leave. Like, pray about it. This is good stuff. All right, so let's continue to place ourselves in the mindset of the original audience. Review, we're going to review some of the Old Testament history that the crowds who followed Jesus were familiar with. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. From the first words of the Torah, the first page of Genesis, God is not like the idols of the pagans. He was there at the beginning of all things. It was he who created the heavens and the earth, and nothing exists except that which God first created. Amen? Come on, guys not even daylight savings. Like, you've had a week. Let's go. <laughs> Side note, you shouldn't, like, I work with youth. Like, if I see that you guys aren't, like, doing something, I'm going to, like, let's go, all right? Goodness. I told Brent this, and he was like, yeah, all right. Okay, Psalm 95, 3 through 6. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. God rules over everything. He is the king. He is strong and mighty, and all bow down before him. And yet, there is a history Actually, it's not a history. The history of humanity is thinking that we know better than him. Starting in the garden, we have consistently rejected and pushed back against our maker. We're like, nah. 
I don't like that. I'm going to do something else. There's a guy named Job in the Old Testament. You've probably heard about him. He goes through some stuff. Anybody know that story? He lost everything. And while he never accuses God of doing wrong, he does throw a tantrum, and he demands an answer from the Almighty. But who is Job to dare demand anything of God? Like, who is this guy? So throughout the book, he is, he is saying, like, I, I am innocent. There is no reason for this to be happening to me. Let, let my accuser come before me. Let him tell me what I did wrong. I demand an answer. I deserve to know what's going on. And his friends are like, yeah, uh-huh. Maybe you sinned. Mm. And just, they're horrible friends. And then we get to chapters 38 through 41. And God himself responds, not with a reason, but with a description of himself. And it is one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. I love this section, partly because God gets a little sarcastic, and I'm like, okay. Um, but it, it's an amazing section. There's a song that we sometimes sing in youth group during worship. It's based on this passage. So we're going to do something different today because I'm going to keep you on your back toes. Back toes. Back foot. Don't have back toes. That's weird. Um, we're going to do something different. We're going to listen to that song. I don't expect any of you but the youth to actually know this song. But the words are on the screen. I want you to listen and focus on hearing who God is. And afterwards, we'll continue on. I said, God, I do not understand this world. Everything is dying and broken. Why do I see nothing but suffering? God, I'm asking, could this be your plan? Sin has taken hold of this whole land. Will you not say anything else to me? He said, where were you the day that I measured? Sunk the banks and stretched the line.
Although I had no right to ask, my God knelt and answered me. This is the God who called Abraham out of Ur and to the land that was given to him and his descendants. This is the God who rescued those descendants from slavery in Egypt with plagues that directly attacked the so-called gods of that earthly kingdom. This is the God who delivered the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the God who, when Moses asked who it was that was going to rescue the children of Israel, simply responded, I am. The people of Israel have and had a unique relationship with their king. And they try to follow God. All through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, they do their best. And they stumble repeatedly. And then we get to the book of Judges, which is a big oof, because watching, not watching, reading that book, it's like watching water swirl down the drain. It's just relentless. The people say they will follow God, and then they fail. They get conquered. Eventually, they repent, so God raises up a judge to help the people, put them back on track. Then they fail again, and the cycle re repeats and just over and over and over. And as the book goes on, the judges, they get worse and worse as they are a reflection of the people themselves. Eventually, though, we do get to Samuel, who was a prophet and a judge. He, he was much better than the ones that came before him. Uh, but he got old. So the elders of Israel, they come up with an idea. And this is a huge pivot point in Israel's history. Like, you gotta know this. Okay, this is 1 Samuel 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old. Thanks, guys. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel does all that and picks up in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, their God, from being their king. This is that point, okay, where everything changes. Up until that point, Israel had been a theocracy. Their king was their God. But now, now they just wanted to be like everyone else. And we've recently talked about what comes next in the story. A handful of kings, Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam. Uh, then the nation splits in half. The northern kingdom of Israel, they had how many kings? 19? Yes, 
19, all ungodly, all terrible. Southern kingdom of Judah had 20. Hey, there you go. Um, a mix of good and bad. Uh, the northern kingdom was eventually wiped out by Assyria, just gone. The southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon sometime later. Their kingdom was destroyed. Judah watched the temple burn. They watched Jerusalem's walls torn down as they are carried away in chains. God had promised them this land through Abraham and had called them his own people through Moses. And now, now the city is glowing at the night. Isaiah 1, 7. Isaiah says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. It felt like God had abandoned them. But the prophets offered glimpses of hope for the future. A future when God would establish a new kingdom. His kingdom. Isaiah picks up in chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Israel had chosen earthly kings. Things got pretty bad pretty fast. And not only had Jerusalem fallen, but they had been scattered among the nations in an attempt to destroy their culture and their faith. It would take something dramatic to rescue them. The nations were so powerful, so powerful. Whatever God was going to do, it had to be huge. It's a good thing that the king of kings was still on his throne. Daniel a man from Judah who had been deported to Babylon. He found himself interpreting a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And he gives this visual of what that rescue would look like. This is Daniel, Daniel 2. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And the people are like, yeah, that sounds good. God's kingdom is coming. It's going to crush all nations of the world. And in a vision of his own, Daniel continues this in chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. A savior is on the way. A messiah, a king to rescue Israel. His kingdom would last forever and would never be destroyed. All the bullies who had oppressed Israel, they would be dominated by this king. 65 years or so after Daniel's prophecy, the Jews are eventually allowed to go back to the promised land to 
to rebuild the temple, and this is it, they might have thought. We're going back. God is going to establish his kingdom now. Yes, we, we're, we're going to rebuild. But as the foundation of the temple is being laid, the elders who had, had seen everything else before, they wept, thinking, this is it. We've seen the temple of Solomon. In comparison to, to that, this is nothing. How, how on earth could this they're looking at this foundation. How could this be a sign of God's kingdom if it doesn't even measure up to what we had before, which was conquered? And they're weeping. And I was just like, this is, this is nothing. So the people waited and waited and waited. They didn't know when, but they knew a Messiah king would come. They trusted that God would establish his kingdom. All the other nations would bow down. Israel would once again be at peace. They would be the other nations would be crushed. And when Jesus began his earthly ministry some 560 years later, the people knew what the kingdom of God was going to look like. They knew what to expect from their promised Messiah. They have been imagining it half a millennium. Obviously, nothing but physical strength and power could save them from Rome. They'd been looking forward to this. The Gospel of Mark kicks things off quickly. It says this in chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we have spent a considerable amount of time this morning put our, putting ourselves in the mindset of the people that heard this. What does that mean for the Jews who had been waiting for this to happen since the Babylon, Babylonian exile. Are they like, yay? Or they're like, yeah! They're excited. Okay? Emperor Tiberius, he rules the Roman Empire, which included Israel, and he was, in other words, the king of the kingdom. Okay? Now that the kingdom of God is here, that's what Jesus just said, that means they would be free. Right? Like that's how this is all supposed to work. Daniel spoke of God's kingdom being one that would destroy all others, that a king would, would rule, and all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. And the crowds, they grow daily. Let's go see Jesus. Did you hear? Did you hear what he said about the kingdom? They're whispering. They're just like, yeah. Don't let the Romans know. We got to go see him. They're probably thinking, let's go get a front row seat. We're going to watch the downfall of these imperialist thugs. He's probably going to gather this, this ragtag group of rebels. They're going to storm Jerusalem. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then Mark 2. They're like, ah, let's get some dinner first. It says, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why? Does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, of a physician. but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the people are like, well, hold up. Um, I thought we were going to go fight Rome. That's what's supposed to happen. This is the guy, right? Like, this is the one who said the kingdom of God was here, Right? What's he doing with these traitors? 
these, this riffraff, why, why would he recruit these outcasts for his army? Like, they don't even follow the law of Moses. Well, I, I heard Jesus is at the synagogue, so let's head on over there. It's a day of rest, and, you know, I'm sure nothing unorthodox is going to happen. I mean, we all know what to expect for the Sabbath. Mark 3 says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And the people were like, nope, not okay, time out. Okay, I don't know about this Jesus. I'm sure that was incredible. I mean, like, he's amazing. And did you see, like, the hand was like this, and it's just like, woof. And it's just, Nuh. okay. But he's going against the law. We aren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Disobeying the law is what got us conquered by Babylon in the first place. We can't be doing that again. Well, it's just, maybe this, maybe this guy is just being edgy to get our attention. Yeah, yeah. Surely he's going to tell us to go to arms so that we can fight with the hosts of heaven against our enemies. Yeah. Oh, he's gathered a crowd. This is it, I'm sure. Here we go. Mark 4, Jesus says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. It yielded no grain. Another seed fell into the good soil. It produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the people are all, Jesus, how is it possible for the kingdom of God to be here if we aren't going to fight? I don't want to be a farmer with low yield percentage. One out of four? Jesus. Like, that's awful. I want a sword and a banner, not a bag of seeds. Who even is this guy? They've turned to themselves like, I don't understand. He's saying stuff like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. The birds of the air made nests in its branches. Why would the crowds be so confused? Because Jesus was not what they expected. They were ready for a fighter. The people of Israel yearned for justice. Throughout their history, they had struggled they had been taken from their home, scattered, many of them never to return. The only thing that kept them going was the hope that things would get better. 
the prophets like Zechariah said things like, Behold, your king is coming. Righteousness and having salvation is he. But where was he? Was it this guy with the seeds? And apparently the people couldn't make up their minds because Luke 4, 28-30 tells of a time that those who heard him in the synagogue became so triggered by what he said, they rushed him, they grabbed Jesus, they dragged him out of town to a cliff, and they were about to throw Jesus over a cliff because they were so angry. Jesus thankfully escapes because he's Jesus. And then in John 6... The opposite happens. John 6, 14 through 15, after Jesus said, fed the 5,000, the people said, this is definitely the guy. And they were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him their king. And Jesus was like, nope. So I guess that makes sense. Because after all, Daniel said the king would do great things when he arrived, and he just fed 5,000 people from you know, a sack lunch. The people were expecting a king who would save them from their current problems with Rome. Any other guy with Jesus' popularity would capitalize on this and do just that. But Jesus was no ordinary man. And the kingdom of God is no ordinary kingdom. And that is the key to understanding all of this. With Jesus, God's kingdom had arrived. But it was way different from what they had expected. It wasn't an earthly kingdom like Rome. Luke 17, 20 and 21, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So then what is the kingdom? Simply put, The kingdom of God is God's reign. It is Yahweh's law and justice being established over and in the hearts of men and women who were once his enemies. It is not a place that you can visit with the right passport stamp, that you go to on vacation and be like, hmm, this is nice, click, click. Put that in my album. Those who follow Jesus are part of this kingdom because of the change that has taken place in their hearts and minds. Jesus called us to enter his kingdom. So that's confusing because that makes it sound like it's a physical place. So is it an internal thing or, or not? So think of it like this. You came here today. Yes? Just making sure you're awake. Okay. You came here today. You walked into this building. You are in church. Okay? just in case that's a surprise to anybody. You are in church, okay? You are no longer in your kitchen. You are here in church. But you, Christian, are also the church. Similarly, God's reign over your life is so transformative, it is like you have physically changed your location. You were there. And now you are here. You have moved. You have changed. You were ruled by your sin nature, and now you are ruled by God. Jesus says, enter into this new life. Enter, move from your old way to your new way. Enter into the kingdom of God 
be ruled by God, not by sin. Now, there is something to be said about a physical future kingdom ruled physically by Jesus in this physical world. It is central to what we believe about the end times, our, our eschatology, if you want a big word. But that is not what Jesus was talking about. In the vast majority of these 100 plus, plus references in the Synoptic Gospels, that's not the focus. Okay? His focus primarily throughout all those references is on the change of heart and the change in allegiance that must take place first. And that's the pinch. Because most of the Jewish people in Jesus' day did not care about a changed heart. They were more focused on the arrival of an earthly kingdom. Just like when they told Samuel that they wanted a human king so they could be like their neighbors. They wanted the wrong thing. Like, we don't care about the seeds and the mustard seed or whatever. Give me a sword, Jesus. Down with the Romans. They wanted the wrong thing. Their focus was on this physical, temporal life, not the spiritual. If that's a pinch, ready for a twist, like if somebody like grabs your finger and just, ding, and you're saying uncle, okay? Let's turn back to chapter one of Mark. We're going to look at two examples. Did I mention we're doing like a ton of scripture this morning? Because we're doing a ton of scripture this morning. Mark 1, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Move down to verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling before him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. You see the common denominator here? Over and over, Jesus told the Jewish people, and even demons, not to say he was the Messiah. And this happens throughout the book. 312, 543, 736, 99, it goes on. Anytime someone in Israel is about to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, he tells them to be silent. The only time he doesn't say this to an individual is in chapter 5, when he's speaking to a non-Jewish guy who had been possessed by legion, you know, that was sent into the pigs, and it's a crazy story, okay? That's the only time in the book of Mark. Where Jesus says, go, tell everyone about this. If Jesus was all about ushering in the kingdom of God and was in fact the promised Messiah, why wouldn't he want the crowds to know who he was? Like that seems like a pretty important thing. Reason is because they wanted their kind of Messiah who would bring their kind of kingdom. 
And if they started talking about, hey, hey, the Messiah is here, yeah, yeah, and they're like, yeah, down with Rome, you're going to spread the wrong news, not the good news. We've spent a good amount of time this morning talking about how the crowds and random people who interacted with Jesus, how they didn't understand the kingdom of God, how they didn't understand that it was no ordinary kingdom. But surely, surely you might be thinking, the disciples were different, right? Nope. Mark 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, good old Peter, answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about this. Again, Jesus says to be silent. Now you might argue, but what if he was telling them not to say anything because of the crowds? You know, the crowds weren't ready, and, you know, yeah. Nope, I don't think so. Because Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that just like the crowds, they were still fixated on the wrong kingdom. And we can know that. We can know that Mark was emphasizing this because of what comes immediately afterwards. Verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus begins to teach something so opposite and so upsetting and so un expected that the oldest and lead disciple like he was part of the inner 12 he was part of the inner three this is peter okay peter scolds jesus he tries to correct the son of god jesus stop you can't say stuff like that you're wrong get behind me Satan. you are not focused on the things of god but on the things of man because Peter doesn't understand what the kingdom of God is about, Jesus calls him his adversary. Let that sink in. Peter is called an adversary of Jesus because he doesn't understand the kingdom of God. So if you were from the beginning of this being like, kingdom of God's not that big a deal, whatever. It's just, okay. No, it's important. Okay? Peter is called an adversary of Jesus because he doesn't get it. And the people who heard Jesus speak, they were, they were expecting the Messiah to look a certain way, to talk a certain way, behave a certain way, but Jesus didn't come to be a political leader who would fight Rome. And this made his message feel wrong and uncomfortable and frustrating. Do you know what the disciples asked Jesus after the resurrection? Like, he's about to ascend to heaven. Acts 1, 6. And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
these dudes saw the risen Christ. Like, they were still focused on the wrong kingdom. I got to imagine Jesus was just like, my dudes. Likewise, we desperately cling to our cultural norms. We demand our will to be done, not God's. To the creator of the universe, the king of kings, we act like we know better. We put our own kingdoms ahead of his. Like Job, we bellow, answer me, God. Like Peter, we say, whoa, Jesus. That's not how we do things around here. Just slow your roll. We love to think that our kingdoms, the things of man, as Jesus put it, we love to think of them as a higher priority than the kingdom of God. We won't say that, but that's how we think about it. And it doesn't matter, like, how good these kingdoms are. It, it could be the kingdom of family, the kingdom of morality, the kingdom of, of nationalism. And, and civic pride, it could be the kingdom of individual rights, the kingdom of conservatism, the king of liberalism, kingdom of liberalism, the kingdom of sexuality, the kingdom of fill in the blank. Whatever is important to you, put it there. It doesn't matter what it is or how well you can argue its merits, how you can hold your own, go toe-to-toe -to -toe against anybody and be like, I am right and you are wrong. Sit down and shut up. Like, it doesn't matter how well you are at arguing this. Mark 8 makes it clear. If you are not focused on the kingdom of God, you are an adversary of Jesus Christ. And that is terrifying. Because I know myself, and I know that I feel strongly about things. And I'm like, am I putting this ahead of the kingdom of God? <sighs> Now, just in case you're not uncomfortable yet, let's double down, because I got you this far. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. According to Jesus Christ, you could be the most moral, the most religious, the most Christian of Christians, and it wouldn't matter if you refuse to let God reign over your life. If you refuse to let God be the king, if you refuse to recognize the kingdom of God, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The book of Mark forces you, forces me, the reader, to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? What is the kingdom of God? And it forces us to do so by holding a mirror to our own selfishness. It forces us to wrestle with an uncomfortable truth that the kingdom of God is not what we expect it to be but it is better than anything this world can offer. Now, things got pretty heavy there at the end. I apologize, but not really, because the Bible's fun. We're going to end with something fun. 
back when I was working on my undergrad in Bible college out in Portland, I had a professor named Dr. Skalberg, which is just a great name. Dr. Skalberg taught history of Christianity, and he was a very dry and very witty man. I am not in that way. And there's times where I'm like, are you joking? I can't tell. Anyway, he was great. Loved his class. Um, at the beginning of the semester, he taught us a pub song about the kingdom of God. And we'd sing it at the start of every class on Fridays. And now I'm going to teach it to you because it ties in and it's fun. So first, I want you to hold your imaginary mug or tankard. This is, this is class participation, okay? I want you to hold your mug. You got it? Okay? It's, it's a big old handle. It's good. It's weighty. Okay? Now, you're going you're gonna to fill it with whatever beverage you want. Now, back then, we were all under contract at Multnomah, which meant that we couldn't have alcohol, even if you were over 21. So, it was root beer. Um, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so, the pub song goes like this, and I realize that I am going to be the only one saying this out loud until you get it. So, I really need you to commit after this. Got it? Yes? You with me? All right. So, it says, The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost, and then you crash your imaginary mugs together, and, and the, the root beer foam just goes, Psh! okay? Now, I'm not going to do that again by myself. You guys got it? It's a very simple tune. So you got your mugs. We're going to sing about the kingdom of God, okay? You're all smiling. You're like, yeah, I get to make-believe in, in church. Okay. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, Righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Well done. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, you are in heaven. Your name is holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be forever done throughout your creation just as it is in heaven. We pray that you give us today only what we need. We pray that you forgive us our shortcomings as we have forgiven those who have failed us. We pray that you do not let us fall into temptation that you continually deliver us from evil. Father, you are so good. You are our king. Amen.